I'm not a big fan of cultural Christianity. I'm not a fan of American Christianity. I'm a fan of Bible Christianity. Because Bible Christianity is birthed from the Scripture, not from our own ideas. So that's what I'm going to come at you with. For those of you who are new and you're not used to me, I'm a fairly intense human being when I'm preaching. I'm not intense all the time. But I take real serious that this is the Bible. And for some of you arrogant people in the room who think you've got this whole thing figured out, this God I'm going to preach about tonight could rise up and deal with you. And I just have prayed all day that you're going to realize that. (laughs) He's not impressed with you. He's God. And uh, it's my prayer you will now hear from him. So let me pray. Lord, I want to be clear tonight from your word. I don't want to make you into something you're not. But I'm convinced that more often in places like this, you're made out to be something you're not. So we want to take the time in the Bible to see clearly who you are. So help us to see. Help us to see and to think tonight. To slow down long enough from Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all those other things to just think about something in a clear way for a few minutes. So lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. An extensive study was done by by Notre Dame. So this is not like a bastion of Christian life. guy's name was Christian Smith. He led the most extensive study of American religious belief among your generation that has ever been done. And what he came up with, what he discovered through this extensive research with his team, that there were five core beliefs that your generation holds. I'd encourage you to get these down, basically, because you will be able to use this as you're trying to talk to people. Here are the five core beliefs. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So core belief number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Now, I'm kind of amazed by that first core belief because that first core belief is not affirming what? Anybody notice? Look, I'll read it again. Who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. That rejects evolution, which is kind of shocking that that is a core belief of, of your generation. So far, not so bad, right? Core belief number two. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Now now we're getting to where things are, getting more inclusive in the language. Core belief number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. 
Core belief number four. God does not need to be involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. God does not need to be involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Core belief number five. Good people go to heaven when they die. Now, Christian Smith took these five things and he put a label on it. Some of you won't be able to spell the second word. Don't worry about it. Just chop it up. I've been doing that my whole life. I've taught English for a while. I still can't spell. Moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. So here's, here's the summary of what American teenagers religiously believe. First, your behavior is crucial as it relates to God. Your behavior is crucial. So you want to be the good you. Whatever that is, you got to be the good you. You don't want to be the bad you. You want to be the good you. Therapeutic. At the core is that you need to be happy. So it's not just you got to be a good you. You got to be a, a happy you. Deism. Anybody know what deism is? Anybody in this room? Come on. Somebody has been exposed to what deism is. Donnie, what is deism? All right, God exists. What else did God do? First thing on your list, what did God do? He created the world. Now what does God have to do with the world? Nothing. Unless, unless you got a problem. Now if there's a problem, God's got to respond. Because what's the central goal of life? Huh? That you're happy. That's the central goal of life. So, so this God who created you, who's up there bored, he's just waiting to make you happy. So he's going to run over here when you need something. Now, I'm about to show you that that is not the God of the Bible. <laughs> By the way, those of you who are thinking a little bit, who's God in those five things? You are. You are. That's the core issue. People have become their own God. Now, what I want you to see tonight as we move through the Old Testament is the first half of that the Lord is a warrior. Now, this is, God reveals himself in a multifaceted way in the Bible. This is one of the clear ways that you see him, and I'm going to show you tomorrow morning why this is so important that you see this truth about who God is, that the Lord is a warrior. And the first thing we want to see, that the, 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 he is the warrior for his glory. So the Lord acts for his glory. This is Exodus 15. This is where the core issue of this comes. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. Let me pause right there. What's happened? We're Exodus 15. What's just happened? The horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. Somebody, somebody, one person, put your hand up and then answer it for me. Here we go. Pharaoh just got drowned along with all the soldiers. All right, so Pharaoh and his army. God split the sea. As people walk through, Pharaoh and his army come riding in. Boom, the sea collapses on them. 
So here they're, they're, they're offering this song. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. Now here it is, verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. Or some translations, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shadows the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up and the flood stood up in a heap and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. I don't know if you study it. What's the most powerful army in the world right now? <laughs> Interesting. People used to answer this right away. You might know? No, today. What is the most powerful army in the world today? No. Somebody said it. China. China's army is massive. We ever tick them off, it's going to be on. It's massive. It's one of those sleeping giants in the world nobody's talking about. Pharaoh's army was China. And God wiped them out. God did it. Not Israel. God did it. And that's the point here. Next page. The warrior for Israel. So the Lord delivers Israel by fighting for them. He goes before the people. So after they crossed the Red Sea, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night is a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people of the Lord. So God is with them, lighting their way, and covering them over in the desert, that's where they are, in a very hot, dry, arid place, he covers them over and goes before them. Then he acts on their behalf. So he's led them through the sea, now he's going to act on their behalf. Verse 21, uh, he stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back with the east wind. That happened before chapter 15. Then in uh, Deuteronomy 7, it says, Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. So God acts in the midst of his creation and calls this thing to happen. Anybody ever gotten a yellow jacket's nest? Man, you people need to live. All right. Seriously, like five people in this room have been in a yellow jacket's nest? What was that like, man, back there in the back? What was that like? How many times did you get nailed? You remember? Huh? A lot. That's some mean rascals, all right? They're in the hornet family. Anybody ever gotten a hornet's nest? They're, they're very rarely around this part of the world anymore. They're, they're bigger and meaner. They're all paper wasp family. Now, here's what God does. In order to protect his people, he sends out hornets instead of an army to attack. You kind of think it was funny at first when you think about it, but the overwhelming nature of it. Now, the first time this, this ever really became real to me was when I was watching Hunger Games. Now the image is in your mind. When they send out that bee and it attacks. Verse 21, you shall not be in dread of them, 
For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord will clear away the nations before you little by little. Verse 23, the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Next page. This is Joshua chapter 10. And the Lord threw them in a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekai and Makeda. And as they flew, fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekai, and they died. Don't miss this next line. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, let's just put yourself in this perspective. Look up here. This is what the Bible is intending you to think. You're the army of Israel. You've got a foe who's bigger than you. You're fighting. You're giving it at your all. You're losing. And God, just before you, in your sight, sends up a thundercloud and drops hailstones so big he pummels your enemy right in front of you. You're not affected, they are. Now, God's doing two things here. First, he's fighting for you. Secondly, he's telling you who you are. <laughs> You're not me. Only I can do this. Later, it says, verse 13, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? There has been no day like it before or since. And look at this. This is what you need to underline if you've got your Bible out. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, the Lord fought for Israel. So this is through creation that you can see. Sometimes God does things, or probably a lot more than we imagine. He, he does things that we cannot see. Now, this is Elisha when the king of Syria is pursuing him. This is 2 Kings 6. When the servant of the, of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You say, okay, I don't believe that. Okay. You need to read the biography of John G. Patton then. John G. Patton uh, was a missionary to the tribe of the Hebrides Islands. These were cannibals. Uh, people had tried to go there before, and they ate them. Seriously, it was a sign of power. That's why cannibals eat people. It's to show we are more powerful than you. They kill you, then they eat you. So, so Patton is there. He, he has a convert, one man, and they're, they're coming to get Patton. So they climb a tree, and, and they can tell that out around them, it's pitch dark, they can tell 
that the, the tribe that's pursuing them are confused. They're yelling and screaming. Finally, they give up and leave. The next day, back at his camp, some of the tribe come in a peace, more peaceful manner. And basically, long story short, they describe that the night before, there was an army surrounding Patton in the trees. I don't believe that. Here's why you don't believe that. It's because you've never been in a place where you had to trust God. We were in Mexico camping, and uh, it was pitch dark. And we were right by where the drug trade came in off of the Gulf of Mexico. And one of the kids who had been out looking at the stars came back and said, uh, Jeff, you need to come out here to the edge of the light with me where you can see. And I walked out there, and there were 20 or 25 young men standing around the perimeter of our camp. And most parents don't know this story. <laughs> and I thought, we're dead. That's it. So I went back to the camp, and I said, guys, these boys mean business out here. We ain't got but one choice. We're going to ask God to protect us. I don't know what happened, but they left. And they left us alone. You see, most of us have never been in a place where God had to fight for us. In fact, in fact, here's what's true. A lot of you are fighting against him. Just have a question at this point in the sermon. You think you're going to win? Because here's what happens. With God, numbers aren't important. The next story is Judges 7. That's Gideon. Gideon and 300 men defeat a massive army of Midianites. And here's how it happened. It's in verse 22 right there in the middle. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade. So when these men woke up, they fought each other instead of Israel's army, and they killed each other. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Weapons were not the issue for David. David knew that Goliath had defied the name of the Lord God, and he said to him, look, it's in verse 46 of 1 Samuel 17, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. So I just have a question for you about the story of David and Goliath. Does, does, it, does the battle end when Goliath strikes, I mean, when David strikes him down with a sling and a stone? Is it over? Some of you are nodding your head. What happens? You know what happens next? Because a 13-year-old boy who believed that God could defeat Goliath goes out, not with sword or spear, and defeats him. Then the army of Israel rise up and rush into the valley and defeat the Philistines. 
It took the courage of this young boy to believe God first. Some of you are David's. You're the first people to step out on the battlefield and say, I, I, believe, I believe that God can do this. The rest of you might not, but God can. He calls his people to join him. The Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand. And God gives them a very odd way how to take Jericho. They march around the walls of the city seven times. They blow the trumpets and what happens? Walls collapse. How many of you had veggie tails when you were little? Isn't the veggie tails of this awesome? <laughs> One of my favorites. When you got the guys inside of Jericho toning the people out there. That's a great image. Just think you're in Jericho, man. You got the, you're, you're the army, you're out there. They sent priests out first? Seriously? They sent the music boys with trumpets? That, that's how this is going to go down? And they blow, I, I stood on the pile of rubble at Jericho. Still there. It's a great reminder of what God has and can do. Now, at the end of Joshua, Joshua is calling Israel together to join in the final fight, if you will. And he says, this is in verse 15, it's in the middle of the paragraph, for it is me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that he went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after you have done good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, don't miss this. You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Now, you keep reading the Old Testament question, is this true? Do they continue to serve the Lord? No. That's what you say. Well, the New Testament is so confusing. It's not confusing. It's not confusing. People sin, all right? God sends a flood, then he sends Abraham. It's kind of an up and down movement. He sets them free from Egypt after they're there from a famine. God does these miraculous things. They take the land. Then they start to act like the pagans again. So now this God who fought for them fights against them. This is where it gets serious. This is where the difficult parts of the Old Testament are. Now we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 
The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. So who's the source of their defeat? It's God. You get that. So so those of you who who think you can grow up in a church like Parkwood and hear about the things of God and continue to arrogantly dismiss it and act like it's unimportant and turn away from it. I'm just, I'm just at this point, I've got to say this. You're, you need to be warned right here. This God may raise up one day. Now, God destroys the people. What prophet is along about this time when God destroys Israel? Anybody know his name? He cried. Yeah, Jeremiah. So he wrote Jeremiah, and then he wrote the little book Lamentations. What does lamentation mean? Weeping, crying. It says, all who pass along, Lamentations 2, the way clap their hands at you, they hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty and the joy of the earth. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Now that sounds pretty bad. Now I want you to get your Bible out. I want you to show you this is here. Turn to Lamentations, probably about square in the middle of your Bible. Look at that. See it? Jeremiah is a really big book. If you find it, it's just to the right. Turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. Now, for those of you that I just spoke strongly to, those of you who stiff-neck your things to God, hear, hear what God says. Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who, what? Seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So God promises here in the midst of this difficult, destructive moment that they brought upon themselves that he is compassionate in his steadfast love and he is going to move toward his people. Now, back to the book, page 14, almost finished. Here's the promise. So God fights for his people, then he fights against his people. Now he promises a warrior who's coming. The promised one who's coming to deliver his people. The first time this warrior is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 49, it says, Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The prophet Isaiah, who comes in this period of difficulty and silence, it says, therefore the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself to, on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your drosses with the lie and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So God is promising here he's going to restore. Later in Isaiah, he says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I contend that those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh will, shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer. What's the last words there? The what? The mighty one of Jacob. In the book of Daniel, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and his head was like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were open, and I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over and burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season. And I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, let's go back to the book of Daniel. We're going to look at it later. Where is Daniel when he writes this? Does anybody remember or know? What location is he? Is he in Israel? He's in exile. That means this. Israel has been conquered. They take the people of Israel and ship them off into what's modern-day Iraq. They're taken over in Persia by a group of people. They're dominated. And in this, God gives him these words that the Ancient of Days is coming, that the one is coming who is going to have dominion. He calls him the Ancient of Days, and then he gives him another name, the Son of Son of man. Would anybody like to guess what Mark calls Jesus? The son of man. Tomorrow morning we're going to look at this and you're going to see that the book of Mark is telling you the warrior has come. Zechariah 14, right in the middle, verse 3. The Lord will go out and fight against the nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Does anybody know where Jesus ascended from? 
You know he ascended, right? After the resurrection, he ascended his disciples. Would you like to know where he ascended from? Anybody know? The Mount of Olives. That was very significant. So Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives overlooks the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, I just want to get you get this image in your mind. If you're standing on the Mount of Olives, there are two graveyards in front of you. The first graveyard is made up of one religion. Would anybody like to guess which religion? It's Jews. So from the peak of the Mount of Olives, down in the Kidron Valley, and partway up the next hill is a Jewish graveyard. From the bottom of the Kidron Valley all the way to the gate, crowded in there as tightly as possible, there's another graveyard. Does anybody like to guess what religion is buried there? Come on, guess. Muslims, exactly. The Dome of the Rock is now built where the temple was, and they believe that the closer you are to that gate, because here's what Islam believes. They believe that Muhammad is going to return to that place. Oh, yeah. But uh, <clears throat> there's about to be a smackdown at the Mount of Olives. Because the Son of Man didn't rise in a dream. He rose visibly in front of people. They saw him ascend. And he is going to return to that location. And it describes here further what he will do. Now, Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, the Lord of hosts. Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Tomorrow morning, we're going to turn to the New Testament and we're going to turn to the one gospel that clearly ties this whole theme together. Don't, hold, on, hold on a minute. Don't look up here. You got to get the significance. The Old Testament ends, a prophet's coming. All the other gospels start with the birth of Jesus. Mark starts with the prophet. What Mark's telling you is this warrior that was promised, he's here. He's here. 
He has come. Now, who is the most powerful athlete in the world? Let me rephrase the question. Who thinks he's the most powerful athlete in the world? Oh, some of you said it. I heard it. It's a bold thing when you call yourself King James. I hope y'all have pondered that thought before. He knows what he's saying. For years, the only Bible anybody used in this part of the world was a King James Bible. He means something awful arrogant about himself when he says that. And he may be the goat, I don't know. You can argue that all you want to. But you hear me on this. You hear me. When the warrior comes, he'll squash him like a grasshopper. Whatever it is you want to be, whatever it is you're pursuing, whatever it is that you're after, however you powerful you think you are, or whoever it is that you're associated with, here's the bottom line realization after we walk through the Old Testament. The God of the Bible is not a butler in heaven to make you happy. That is not who he is. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the mighty God. And He has come. So, I'm intentionally going to let you go to bed on that. Thinking about who God is. So, before you call your mom and say, I went to this camp and this dude's like really mean and and I really don't like this, and I want to come home. This happens usually every year after the first night because some of you have never heard anybody talk like this about the Bible. Tomorrow morning, the good news comes. But here's what's unfortunate. The reason so many of you got these whacked views of God is that we never let the holiness of God sit on us. We never let it just weigh in on us as to who he is. So let's pray. Lord, Every time I teach this, I, I know that it's risky to be misinterpreted and mishandled and mistreated. I don't want to make you out to be something you're not. But God, I confess that far too often we do that. We've been so affected by pluralism and by the fear of offending someone that we don't present you as who you are. I just pray right now that, that we would be as confronted as Isaiah was when he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I am undone. And may that cause us to run to you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who alone can save. Lead us, we pray now in Jesus' name.